0: One of my favorite sayings is a quote I ran across a number of years ago now, and the more I live, the more I appreciate the truth of this saying. It goes something like this, God often works behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes he is behind. That is a profound statement when you stop to consider it. It is saying that God is always at work even when we can't see Him at work, even when we can't tell what He is doing. God is always at work to accomplish His plans and purposes. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. In other words, at exactly the right time, Once God had everything all prepared at the exact right time, God sent His Son. What was the right time? Or to ask the question a different way, how did God set the stage for the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus? You are probably aware of the fact that after God spoke through the prophet Malachi, there were 400 years of silence in the sense that God did not speak through a prophet. But that didn't mean that God wasn't working. He was working. For example, in approximately 331 B.C., the Grecian Empire came to power and ruled the world. It was the third world empire to rule the world. World. The first world empire was the Babylonian Empire. That empire was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the Medo Persian Empire that was conquered by Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire in about 331 BC. Why did that happen? Why did God allow that or cause that to happen? It wasn't just happenstance. Remember, history is his story. And remember, God is always working behind the scenes. When Alexander and his Grecian Empire conquered the world, the Greek language was imposed on the world. In time, virtually everyone knew Koine Greek, even if it wasn't their primary language. Can you see why God allowed this to happen? God wanted his New Testament to be written in Greek, and he wanted everyone to be able to read it. So God used the Grecian Empire to give the world the Greek language and the Greek culture to prepare the world for His Son and the words of Scripture that would be written about His Son. But that's not all God did. In approximately 146 B.C., the Grecian Empire was conquered by the Roman Empire. Why did that happen? What was God doing in that? What did the Roman Empire contribute to the world situation to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus? The Roman Empire contributed an extensive road system. Certainly you've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. The Roman Empire contributed an extensive road system in the world and an extensive government structure which provided stability in the world. Why did God want that in place for the coming of his son? Because just think about the great missionary work of Paul and others as they used those Roman roads and those and they used the conditions under the Roman government, the conditions of stability to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation. You see God was using all the human variables and all the human circumstances and all the human events to carry out His plan and His purpose. That's the way God works. He set the stage perfectly for the coming of His Son and the writing of His New Testament. That's why Galatians says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. When the time was right, when everything was ready, God sent Forth his son Jesus Christ came to this earth as a man to carry out the will of God. that's what our text is about this morning in the Gospel of John chapter 1 so please turn there with me in your Bible to the fourth gospel record, the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John chapter 1. the first 18 verses of John's gospel form what is known as the prologue. The term prologue is a technical term that describes the summary of John's gospel in the first 18 verses. A prologue is really more than a preface to a book because in the prologue we are given a summary of the content of the entire book. In other words, in the first 18 verses, John tells us in summary fashion everything he plans to present throughout the book. In verses 1 through through 3, he tells us that Jesus is deity. In verse 4, he tells us Jesus is the life and light of men. In verse 5, he tells us that the darkness could not overcome or squelch the light of Jesus. In verses 6 through 13, he tells us that most people did not receive Jesus, but some did. In verses 14 through 18, he tells us that Jesus took on human flesh To explain the Father. Now, that's that's a summary of the entire Gospel of John in the first 18 verses. John takes these basic themes and develops them and expands them throughout the rest of his book. And that is why the first 18 verses are technically known as the prologue. The prologue is the entire Gospel in small capsule form. So let's read John's prologue as we consider part of it this morning for our Christmas message. Beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or extinguish it, depending on your translation, overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred or is higher than I, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. That is an overview of John's entire gospel. Jesus is deity. He is the life and light of men. The darkness couldn't stop Him. Only a a few received Him. And He revealed the Father to us. That's basically the content of John's entire gospel. John's primary purpose in his gospel is to present to us the matchless person of the Lord Jesus so that we will give him our lives. And John wasted no time getting started in attempting to accomplish his purpose. In verse 1a, he presents Jesus as the Word of God. In verse 1c, he presents Jesus as the essence of God. In verse 2, he presents Jesus as the eternal God. In verse 3, he presents Jesus as the creator God. In verse 4A, he presents four he presents Jesus as the life of God. In verses 4B through 13, he presents Jesus as the light of God. In verse 14A, he presents Jesus as the incarnate God. In verse 14B, he presents Jesus as the glory of God. In verse 14C, he presents Jesus as the Son of God. In verses 15 through 18, he presents Jesus as the revelation of God. All of that is in John's prologue. This morning, I want us to focus on verses 14 through 18, in which Jesus is presented in four ways by John. Jesus is presented as the incarnate God, the glory of God, the Son of God, and the revelation of God. Notice, Verse 14, how it begins. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That brief statement is a central truth of Christianity. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate every year during this time. The Word became flesh. Notice that John doesn't refer to Jesus by His name. Instead, he refers to Jesus as the Word. John is simply picking up his theme from verse 1, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then skip to verse 14, And the Word became flesh. This raises a question. Why does John call Jesus the Word? Why not just say Jesus? There are at least two reasons behind John's use of this term. First of all, John calls Jesus the Word because of his Hebrew or Jewish readers. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, held the Word of the Lord in highest esteem. You've read through Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament. You've noticed how many times that phrase occurs. The Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The Word of the Lord says thus and thus. In fact, the phrase, the word of the Lord, was often used as a synonym for God himself. So John takes this term, which was regarded so highly by the Jewish people, and he says, Listen, Jesus is the very word of God. Jesus is the word of the Lord in a body. What a shocking concept. That would have been to the Jewish people. Jesus is the very word of God in the flesh. But there was a second reason why Jesus chose this particular term, the Greek word logos, translated word. A second reason why John calls Jesus the word was because of his Greek readers. The Greeks believed in a power, a force, a force floating around in the universe known as the divine reason of the universe. And interestingly, they call this inanimate force the Lagos, or the Word. So in one little statement, John says to the Jewish, uh, his Jewish readers, Jesus of Nazareth is the Word of the Lord. And he says to his Greek audience, Jesus is the divine reason, logic, and power of the universe. The Word became flesh. The Word became a man, and his name is Jesus. By the way, the precise translation of verse 14 is, and and I, I mention this because I realize we have a lot of different English translations. The precise translation of verse 14 is the Word became flesh, not the Word was made flesh. Jesus was not made. He was not created Verse 3 tells us He is the Creator. Verse 2 tells us He is eternal. Jesus was not made. He became flesh. He became a man. And here in this little phrase, we see beautifully both sides of the dual nature of Jesus. He is 100% God and 100% man. He's as much God as if he were not man at all and as much man as if he were not God at all. He was not all God and no man. He was not all man and no God. He was not half God and half man. He is the God-man. Genuine deity and genuine humanity brought together in one person without any mixing of the natures or without any separating of the person. And that, beloved, is the miracle of all miracles. It is really beyond our comprehension. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, without any doubt, without any discussion, without any debate, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifested in the flesh. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a mind-boggling miracle of God when you try to unravel it and comprehend it. Turn with me over to the right to the little letter called Philippians chapter 2. After Acts, Romans, we have some large letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Three small letters together. Look at Philippians chapter (coughs) 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, did not consider it something to be held onto, to, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Now that doesn't mean Jesus appeared to be a man and he wasn't a man. It meant his appearance was human. It was not as we often see it portrayed at Christmas time. It wasn't as if his appearance was supernatural in the sense of having a halo over him or anything that made him stand out. No. Paul is saying here being found in appearance as a man. He looked just like a man because he was a man. His appearance was human. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This passage tells us that in the incarnation, Jesus emptied himself, not of his deity, not of his attributes of deity. He emptied himself of the free use of his divine attributes. And he became a man and lived as a man. And yet, Colossians 2.9 can say, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. I'll tell you something. You start digging into the nature of Jesus Christ and it will blow your mind. The master of eternity was born in time. The creator of mankind was born of a woman. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That's what John is saying in that one little phrase in John 1, 14. The Word became flesh. Now let's go back there to John's prologue, to John chapter 1. Notice after John makes that statement in in the beginning of verse 14, he adds more. He says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt in the original language is the word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You could say it this way. Jesus pitched his tent with mankind. He tabernacled. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was humble in its external appearance, but inside dwelt the Shekinah glory of God. And so it was with Jesus Christ. On the outside, he looked like any other Jewish man, but he possessed the Shekinah glory of God. So John adds the next phrase in verse 14. He says, "The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory." The word "we" here in this verse seems to refer primarily to the disciples, but also to other eyewitnesses. John is writing with excitement. We beheld his glory. We saw it. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, John and the other disciples had the awesome privilege of beholding the glory of the God-man. For example, look at the next chapter, chapter 2, in which we read about the wedding feast in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. And if you ever noticed the final verse of that story, verse 11, it says... This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Now watch this. And manifested his glory. He showed his glory. The miracle of turning water into wine was far more than just a kind gesture to help out some people who were in a bind because they ran out of wine. It was a revelation of the glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Skip over to chapter 11 for another example few pages to the right chapter 11 verse 1 <clears throat> it says now a certain man was sick lazarus of bethany the town of mary and her sister martha it was that mary who anointed the lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother lazarus was sick therefore the sisters sent to jesus saying lord behold he whom you love is sick when jesus heard that he said This sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When Jesus did what he did on this occasion in response to the death of Lazarus by raising Lazarus from the dead, the disciples saw the glory of the Son of God. What a unique display of glory. To stand outside a tomb and to say literally two words. Jesus only uttered two words to Lazarus. He said, Hear outside that's what he said here outside and with that lazarus comes back to life that revealed the glory of god back up to luke chapter 9 the 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 gospel account just prior to to john's And, and notice this reminder of a revelation of jesus glory luke 9 verse 28 now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that Jesus took Peter, James, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his death, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of those things they had seen so on the mount of transfiguration jesus pulled back the veil of his flesh to display his glory that's what luke specifically says and this had such a profound impact on these disciples peter mentions it in his second epistle years later second peter 1:17 says of jesus for he received from god the father listen to this Honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. So the disciples had the privilege of seeing the glory of Jesus throughout his earthly life. But that's not all. Jesus was also glorified in his death. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12, verse 23. John records this, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What's he talking about? Jesus is referring to his death here in this verse. The hour is coming that the Son of Man, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 13, notice what Jesus said in verse 31. So when he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Again, this is a reference to the death of Jesus, which was only hours away when Jesus spoke this. The glory of God was seen in the death of Jesus. It was seen in such a profound way that the centurion, the Roman soldier, the centurion standing by, uh, an unbeliever says, truly, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus displayed his glory and the Father's glory throughout his life and in a unique way in his death. And John was an eyewitness to all of this. That's why John said what he did in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. But John doesn't stop there. He continues in John 1, 14. He says, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The phrase only begotten means one of a kind, monogenes in Greek. The reason Jesus had so much glory is because he is the unique son of God. He's not just a son of God, but the son of God. He is a son in a sense totally different from a human being who believes in Jesus and becomes a son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And that is the title of deity. The title Son of God places Jesus on an equal plane with God the Father. It in no way, please hear this, it in no way implies inferiority. Let me show you this in John 5. Look at John chapter 5. This is so important to understand because so many people fail to realize that the title Son of God is a title of deity. They assume that somehow it means Jesus is less than God the Father. But look at John 5, verse 16. It says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, watch this, making himself equal with God. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, He was claiming complete equality with the Father. That phrase, Son of God, is used nine times in John's Gospel. Because one of the purposes of John's Gospel is to document the deity of Jesus Christ. So in John 1.14, when John says, We beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, John is again ascribing complete deity to Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate God. He is the glory of God. He is the Son of God. And He is full of the attributes of God. So the last phrase in John 1.14 says this, full of grace and truth. Jesus incarnated the grace of God. He incarnated the truth of God, so much so that in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was the full and complete revelation of God. And that's why the greatest human being to ever live, John the Baptizer, spoke so highly of Jesus. In John 1, after this phenomenal statement in John 1, 14, we have this This further description, verse 15, says John bore witness of him. Now, by the way, this John in verse 15 is not John the writer of this book. The John in verse 15 is John the baptizer. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, or he who comes after me is higher than I, for he was before me. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven eleven that John the baptizer was the greatest human being to ever live to that point. But notice that John the baptizer said Jesus was infinitely superior to him. The last phrase here in verse 15 is quite an intriguing statement for John the baptizer to make of Jesus. He says, he was before me. Now think about that. John the baptizer was actually six months older than Jesus. And John the baptizer started his ministry months before Jesus started his. Yet, John the baptizer says, he was before me. In what sense? The point that John John the baptizer was making here is that even though he was older than Jesus, and even though he started his ministry before Jesus started his ministry, Jesus is eternal. Jesus was before John because Jesus is eternal. And Jesus himself claimed this in this very gospel. If you just turn over a few pages to the right to chapter 8, you'll see one example. Chapter 8, verse 51, as Jesus is in a confrontation with some Jewish leaders of his day. Verse 51, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. You're demon-possessed. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That is a claim to eternality. And the Jewish audience standing around got it. They knew what he was saying because the very next verse says, then they took up stones to throw at him. They knew Jesus was claiming eternality. And that is exactly what John the baptizer ascribed to Jesus back in chapter 1 where he says, he was before me. I go back to our text there in chapter 1. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said... He who comes after me is higher, ranks higher than I, for he was before me. Then verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. John says of his fullness or out of his fullness we have all received. What have we received? Well, what is Jesus full of? Verse 14 says he's full of grace and truth. And out of that fullness, we have all received. So when we receive Jesus, we receive the grace of God. When we receive Jesus, we receive the truth of God. I know it is inflammatory to make this kind of statement in our day and age, but the fact is, only those of us who know Jesus really know the truth. And I'm not talking about certain scientific or historical truth. I'm talking about eternal truth. The the most important truth. All others are groping in the darkness without truth, without ultimate truth. But when we come to Jesus, we come into the truth. The way John phrases this here in verse 16 is so beautiful. Notice he, he uses the phrase, out of his fullness we have received. Out of his fullness. The picture he is painting is of an ocean. Picture the vast ocean, and no matter, how many, no matter how many cupfuls of water you take out of the ocean, you don't exhaust the supply. In the same way, God is not stingy with His grace. He gives us grace and truth out of the fullness of Jesus. In Colossians 1, nine, it says of Jesus, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. And John says here, out of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. You could almost translate this, grace upon grace. It's like the waves of the ocean. It just keeps coming. Grace just keeps coming in to meet every need. That's why God could tell Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when Paul said, God, would you take this thorn from me? Would you please take this? And God said to him, no, I won't. The Lord said, No, I won't take it from you, but I will increase grace. 2 Corinthians 12 9, my grace is sufficient for you. When it seems we'll run out of grace, there's even more grace. The songwriter said it well when he wrote, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. When it seems like we're going to run out of grace, there's even more grace. It's just like the waves of the ocean, it just keeps coming. So John says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is making a contrast here in this verse. In fact, there are actually three contrasts here. Law contrasted with grace and truth. Given contrasted with came. Moses contrasted with Jesus. That's the contrast. But be careful here. Be careful not to think that this is a contrast between something bad and something good, because that's not the case. This is a contrast between something great and the greatest. We have the tendency to look at the law as, something, as being something bad, but it's not bad. The New Testament never puts down the law as being evil. The New Testament simply explains the insufficiency of, or inadequacy of the law because of our human weakness but but the new testament doesn't call the law evil and the new testament condemns the misuse of the law but the law wasn't evil it's a great thing so be careful not to think that the contrast here is between bad and good because it's not it's a contrast between something that was great and something that's the greatest As you probably know, the Jews esteemed Moses very, very highly. He was a great man. And he delivered the law of God to the people so they would know how God wanted them to walk and please him. No other nation had such a privilege as Israel to have the great law of God. But verse 17 is saying, Jesus brought something even greater. Grace and truth came through him, and not just given by him, but came through him as he lived it. Linsky said it this way, God did not merely tell us about grace and truth so that he could have used another Moses or an array of prophets. Jesus himself was grace and truth. His own person and his work constitute the very substance of grace and truth. That's why John could close out his prologue by saying Jesus displayed the Father. Notice the final verse of the prologue, verse 18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, some of your translations say, others the only begotten God, referring to God the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. John says no one has seen God. That's not anything new. Scripture affirms that over and over. 1 Timothy 1.17 says God is invisible. Hebrews 11.27 says God is invisible. 1 Timothy 6.16 says He dwells in unapproachable light. Just as the human eye is not sensitive enough to see the infrared and ultraviolet rays of light, so also the human senses are not capable of seeing, understanding, or comprehending the infinite God. That's why Jesus came. He came to reveal the Father, to show us the Father, to help us see what we could not see with our own natural human senses. Jesus came to display him, to explain him, to interpret him, to reveal him. In fact, the original language here says he exegeted him. You've heard of exegesis, drawing out of Scripture what it means? Well, Jesus exegeted the Father. He showed us the Father. In John 14, 9, Jesus told Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 3 says, Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of His person. The exact image. Colossians 1, 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. You can't see Him. You want to see Him? Look at Jesus. Jesus revealed the Father. To John's way of thinking, if you want to know what God is like, you simply say, "Jesus." Barclay put it this way: "In Jesus Christ, the distant, unknowable, invisible, unreachable God has come to men, and God can never be a stranger to us again." End quote: Is God a stranger to you? Can you, with full confidence and full assurance, call God your Father? And it be true? Is it really true that God is your Father? The only way God is your Father, please hear this. Though it's a popular notion in our culture, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of mankind, that's not a biblical concept. It is not true that God is the Father of every human being and that all people are brothers. God is only the father of those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ. And all those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ are brothers and sisters. So is God your father? You see, just because Jesus came to this earth, which is what we celebrate at this time of the year, that doesn't automatically mean you are right with God. If there's one message I would want to get out into our nation, our culture, it is that that message. There's nothing automatic about salvation. Oh, there are so many people in our nation who believe, who think that just because Jesus came, that automatically means everybody's right with God. That is not true. You are not right with God unless you have personally received Christ. Christ. Which is why John says right here in this prologue, down in verse 13 or verse 12, But as many as received him, to them, not to everyone, to them, he gave the right or authority to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Have you received him? Is God really your father? Let's bow together in prayer. As you bow your head and close your eyes, please, please seriously consider that question, that issue. Is God really your Father? And hear me when I say He is not your Father if you have not received Jesus Christ by faith. God is not the Father of all human beings. He's only the Father of those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ. Have you placed faith in Jesus Christ? If you have not, or if there's any question in your mind, resolve it this very moment, this morning, right where you are seated, in the quietness of your own heart. Just call out to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I do want to receive you. I want you to be my own Lord and Savior. Not just the Lord, which you are, but mine. I want you to come into my life, forgive me of my sin, take control of my life, and make me the man that you want me to be or the woman you want me to be. Please hear me when I say there's nothing automatic about salvation. You must personally respond to the gospel. And Father, that is our prayer as we wind down this message, that you would stir people's hearts here who are hearing this message, who maybe assume that because of Christmas, that automatically means they're fine. They're okay. They're right with you, which is not the case. May they hear the message of Scripture, that Jesus came to this earth to be a man, to die for men and women. And He has purchased the gift of salvation. And He calls on us to surrender to Him. Father, I pray for anyone who has not done that, that maybe this would be the day, this final Lord's Day before Christmas, that this would be the day that he or she would receive Jesus Christ by faith. In whose name we pray, amen.